0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second session of today for forum. Uh, it's called Narcissus and Echo. Um, uh, it's a session with and with Grada Kilomba and around her work. You will see her after the images. Um, Grada Kilomba's work uh, inhabits um, a peculiar, uh, fascinating space somewhere between language, video, psychoanalysis. Um she she has worked a lot with performance and uh, the question of who can speak and whose uh, whose speech has been uh, erased and the question of of um, knowledge, knowledge production, and decolonizing knowledge production as a matter of fact, um, Decolonizing Knowledge is the theme of the panel that will follow this session and she will join us for, for the discussion around that um, as well. Uh, the, what we are going to see tonight is a work that um, is a new version of a work that already has kind of a a, a short little life of its own. Uh, it's called Illusions. It first started as a commission from the Berlin Biennial uh, and it was a performance um, that was then turned into a two-channel video installation. And very recently, thanks to an award that Grada received from the um, International Film Festival in Rotterdam, she turned that whole work into a one-channel video, uh, which we are going to see today. It had its premiere uh, worldwide screening uh, three weeks ago in Rotterdam, and so this is the second time it is shown. Um, it restages the myth of narcissism and echo, uh, and while using the oral tradition of African storytelling, the I, with Grada Kilomba playing the role of the griot, uh, in this case, giving a voice to the images in, in some way, um, um, and and so Narcissus. Uh, I'm not sure how much I should tell you. Actually, maybe I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> you, we will discuss who Narcissus is and why he is here. Maybe after uh, we screen the video, we'll have a little conversation with, with Grada and, and we will open the floor to, to questions. The, the video is about 30 minutes long uh, and we will have about 20 or 30 minutes for discussion afterwards.
1: invited to come here today, but I actually feel that there is nothing new I can say. I often have this feeling that everything was already said, and I often feel that we all know everything already, just tend to forget it. This is why today I want to tell you a story, the story of Narcissus and of Echo. In the Greek mythology, Narcissus was a hunter who was known for his beauty. It was said he had the most perfect body, the most perfect face, a perfect nose, perfect lips. The most perfect skin, the most perfect hair. He was a perfect being, loved by many, but Narcissus loved no one. He enjoyed praise and attention. He attracted many lovers, all of whom he briefly entertained, before scorning and refusing them. In his eyes, no one was worthy of him and his beauty. Nemesis, the goddess of judgment, noticed his behavior and cursed Narcissus. He should only love someone who could never love him back. His own image. But the story of Narcissus cannot be told without the story of Echo. In the Greek mythology, Echo was a beautiful nymph who lived on the mountain. Echo had a failing, though. She was fond of talking and would always interrupt others or have the last word. She knew everything better. One day, the goddess Hera was seeking her husband, Zeus, who she had reason to fear was amusing himself among the nymphs. Hera became suspicious and followed him in an attempt to catch Zeus. However, Echo trying to protect him engaged Hera in a long, long conversation, interrupting her and speaking until the nymphs may they escape, giving time to Zeus to evade her. When Hera realized it, she cursed Echo, not to speak again, removing a voice with the exception that she could only repeat the last few words she hears. Now, go, shouted Era Echo tried to plead for forgiveness, but all she could say were the last words of error. Go, go, go. Poor Echo, wanderer through the forest alone, sad
2: and desperate.
1: One day she saw a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful man named Narcissus, who was hunting in the woods. Echo felt deeply in love with him. She contemplated him and she longed to tell him about her love. But as she was unable to speak, she could only follow his footsteps and waited in the woods, expecting the moment he would speak. What Heco did not know was that Narcissus ignored those around him, and disdained those who loved him. In love, Echo longed to tell Narcissus about a deep affection, so she kept following him in the woods, hiding and waiting for the moment to speak to him. As Echo was cursed by Hera, she had her voice removed and could only speak the last few words she hears. So. Echo waited impatiently for Narcissus to speak first and had an answer ready in the hope of hearing his voice.
2: My own skin, since I met you, I have lost my way. A part of me is overtaken by shadows that brighten up the night. The sight of you makes me begin wanting to own this love again. I don't know how long I'll pretend not to notice you're inside my
1: Narcissus had also been cursed by the goddess Nemesis, who attracted him to a lake with waters like silver blue. And there came Narcissus, heated and thirsty, followed by Echo. As he sat by the lake and leaned, over the water to drink, suddenly, suddenly he saw his own image mirrored at the surface of the water.
2: Perfection, absolute perfection. He stood
1: gazing himself with admiration this face, this lips, this nose, this eyes, this skin, this hair, so perfect, so beautiful. Never before he had seen such a beautiful creature. The beauty was such that he thought it might be a water spirit living in a lake. Narcissus, fell in love, not realising it was merely his own image. He fell in love with his image reflected on the water. An Echo, who could not reach Narcissus with her own words, remained hidden in silence and forced to see Narcissus falling in love. Himself. Narcissus could not look away, he was fascinated. So he spoke to the image Who are you? Echo given the opportunity repeated his words, you, you, you. He spoke again. "Why, are you, my beauty? And Echo replied. I have never seen such a beautiful creature, he said. You are beautiful, my love. Echo repeated his words once again. My love, my love, my love. Narcissus was now sure the image had spoken back to him.
2: of you makes me begin wanting to own this love again I don't know how long I'll pretend not to notice you're inside my dreams you're the song I want to sing when the sun sets the horizon no.
1: again. Come to me, my love. My love, my love, my love. Echo answered with whole her heart in the same words and rushed and ran to Narcissus. But Narcissus, who thought the replies he heard, came from the image on the water, looked at Echo with surprise and became furious. Hands off, he said. I would rather die than you should have me and turned his back on her. Humiliated, Echo left in despair. Her heart was broken. She ran away to the mountains to hide in the recesses of the woods where she died. Her body became a stone, and all that remained was a voice which still replies when others speak. The Echo Narcissus reached the lake again to see his love. He contemplated him and bent down his head to kiss him. And as he did so, the reflection mimicked his actions and kissed him back. Taking this as a sign of reciprocal love, Narcissus touched the water but suddenly, suddenly the water displaced and the vision disappeared. Why? beautiful being. Why do you shun me? He said. Surely my face is not one to repel you. The nymphs love me, and you yourself look not indifferent upon me. When I stretch forth my arms, you do the same, and when I smile at you, you smile upon me. Please do not leave me. Desperate for not having an answer and frightened to touch the water again and to see his love disappearing from the water surface, Narcissus laid still by the lake, gazing into his own image. He did not move, he did not eat, he did not drink, he only suffered. Unable to leave his own reflection, Narcissus drowned in the lake, and on the very same place where he was last seen a flower grown, the Narcissus. It is said that Echo remained loyal to Narcissus and that her spirit visits him on the lake from time
2: to time. The song I want to sing when the sun sets, the whole world's on the flame, a flame, a flame.
1: of love Narcissism Narcissism is the love directed towards the image of oneself. It is the excessive admiration of one's self-appearance and the incapacity to love or acknowledge others as objects of love. Narcissistic Narcissistic is this white patriarchal society in which we all live, that is fixated in itself and in the reproduction of its own image, making all the others invisible. I, I am surrounded by images which do not mirror my body, I enter libraries, theatres, museums, galleries, cinemas, universities, always to find myself surrounded by the reflected image of whiteness, always gazing itself and reproducing itself as the ideal object of love. As Fanon wrote, all this whiteness, There is an illusion, a disruption, a disruption between the reality and its mirrored image. An optical disruption because the images I see do not reflect the society in which I live. A political disruption because the society in which I live is not reflected on the images I see. There is a disruption between object and reflection, a profound narcissism that seems to reduce the world into the reflected image of whiteness. Within such narcissism, marginalized people are defined images, symbols or vocabulary to narrate their own history or to name their own trauma. Because in the dominant narratives we are constructed not only as the other but also as otherness. The personification of what the society does not want to be like is allows whiteness to construct itself as the norm, as the normality, as the synonymous of humanity. It seems the white subject is somehow divided within itself, for it develops two attitudes towards reality. The good parts of the ego are experienced as being the self and the bad parts are projected onto the others and experienced as external objects. The black body becomes then the external object that embodies what the white society has made taboo aggression and sexuality. We become then the threatening, the aggressive, the problematic, the chaotic, the dirty, but also the desirable the exciting and the exotic. We become what we are not. Sometimes, sometimes I feel that I live in a space of timelessness, in an empty space, a space where time seems not to exist. I feel that I live in a space where the past interrupts my present and where the present is experienced as if I was in the past. I live in a space of timelessness, an empty space, a wide space, a wide infinity, a white cube that presents itself as absent of colour and of meaning. But white is not the absence of color, but the sum of all colors. It is the accumulation of all possible colors. In fact, blackness is the absence of color. An interesting metaphor, isn't it? Blackness is always seen, but absent. Whiteness is never seen, but always present present in all spaces, it is an absent centre, it is at the centre of everything but its centrality is not seen as relevant, we live in a white cube that presents itself as unmarked, unseen, absent, neutral. But, as I said, we cannot talk about Narcissus without talking about Echo. Who is Echo? Echo? Echo is the white consensus. She is the one who repeats and confirms the words of Narcissus. She follows him, silently, and each moment of a silence supports Narcissus' sentences. Echo is the character that innocently duplicates Narcissus' words claiming not having to know. Knowing but not having to know is a privilege that not all of us have. is a double ignorance, one does not know, and one does not have to know, or a triple ignorance, one does not know, one does not have to know, and actually one should not know, a multiple layer of ignorances. It remains then a simple question, which role do we choose to have? The role of Narcissus, not to know, the role of Echo, not wanting to know, the obedience that we should not know, or knowing what we since long know. So I finish with the exact same words as I began with. I was invited to come here today, but I feel that There is nothing new I can say. I do often have the feeling that everything was already said. And I often feel that we all know everything already. We just tend to forget it.
0: Thank you, Grada, for this work. And I should start by apologizing to you and to everyone, because there is some kind of bizarre phenomenon happening of music coming from those speakers in the ceiling. We have been trying to get it to stop the whole time, and um, nobody knows where this ghostly thing is coming from. So, so not all of the sound you've heard was in the film. (laughs) (laughs) It was not, (laughs) and I'm I'm very sorry about that. Um, um, So, you can any of you can ask questions at any time. Perhaps I will I will start, and and uh, and uh, Grada can give us a little bit more context, and we can speak about some of the issues raised. in this work, but perhaps my my first question would be this thing that came up towards the end of the film the this question of the timelessness, you know the present, the past, and the space the space of whiteness as being this um, pretend timelessness in a way, or the possibility to claim a kind of timelessness. Um, and I'm thinking about a couple of things. One of them is, you know, the way you framed the film. This kind of white background, the very stylized kind of movement of, of bodies, decontextualized in some way, uh, dehistoricized as well. Like in terms of the image, and the relation of that to the white cube, since we're in an, an art fair, and it, it is mentioned in the, in the in the video.
1: Well, um, there are, I think there. Are m- many different layers that you can discover and see. I think every time you see this piece, you can discover different layers. Um, I think, for me, it was very important to um, play. It's almost like um, there's a certain irony, poetic irony, that I wanted to bring into the film and to work with elements of comedy and choreography. Um, to work on this very tragic historical past that we have and how this very tragic historical past um, keeps repeating and staging, uh, restaging itself. So, um, I thought that um, it would be very interesting to work with a very, my work is always very minimalist. Uh, I try to use as less as possible so that we really focus on the storytelling. The storytelling was for me the most important. It for me was a kind of a homage to um, the tradition of the criot and to the African tradition, oral tradition of storytelling and knowledge production. So I was very keen through this piece to rediscover how you produce knowledge um using so many different layers from the psychoanalysis like you said psychoanalytical readings to choreography to staging to performance, theater elements, the music is very important, it's always constant, using the music as a form of narrative uh, as a form of telling, of narrating a story, uh, there were so many different elements that I wanted to explore and um, I thought that these uh, studios, this infinite. Studios uh, would be a perfect metaphor to speak about this white infinity and the white cube. Um, this was um, this was the setting that I created to tell the story. Um, but his timelessness um, was a very important element for me. Uh, this work came after previous work where uh, in which uh, was very dedicated to the concept of trauma and the concept of trauma and the historical trauma and collective trauma. And timelessness is indeed one of the elements that defines trauma. Trauma is a word that derives from the Greek word to say injury or wound, um, but actually it involves uh, several um, elements, being one of them the shock Another one, the separation, Um, a shock that is experienced, something that is experienced as a shock. Not that you don't know that is going to happen, but the shock is there because of its dehumanizing characteristic. It's not that we don't think that we live without racism but that every time we experience racism we are in contact with dehumanization. Exactly this element of dehumanization is the shock that I'm describing and that creates a separation uh, with the society and this creates at the same time a sense of timelessness that you don't know anymore uh, what is present and past and that the present and the past coincide. so I wanted to play with this in this piece with this idea that um, we are and you said it today so beautiful uh, colonial time is over but decolonization didn't happen yet so actually we are still it's it's a, 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 a tricky chronology a chronology where we are we talk about postcolonialism knowing that we're still in the colonial uh, structure and it's exactly this timelessness where colonial structures revisit and interrupt the present. And I wanted to play with that. So there's all these different elements uh, inside that I thought, I don't want to write about it anymore. I want to perform it. And I want to work with actors on a studio and tell a story and play ironically with the constructing this universal knowledge that we are taught at school, like the Greek mythology. And then with irony, but what do marginalized people read from this universal knowledge? How do I read what was imposed to me in the curriculums? What can you read from that? Um, And that was, for me, very interesting to explore all these different dimensions. Narcissus as a metaphor for a post-colonial society that is still trapped trying not to change the structures. So well,
0: I mean, and the choice of this particular myth, obviously, is uh, not innocent, <laughs> because with the dehumanization, for instance, that you're talking about, part of the dehumanization, or one instance of dehumanization, is the impossibility to speak, to speak. right? Or to speak back. And, yeah, but, and but, and
1: but that is becomes as a metaphor in echo. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Echo, e- echo, echo, echo! Um, and, and I'm thinking
0: mm-hmm. of that also, like Echo not being able to speak for herself, only repeat, and also the, the presence of all the multiplicity of microphones in the in the image. <laughs>
1: that was the forest of the microphones, and uh, she keeps screaming and talking, but she our voice is not heard. So there's many different layers, I think, also by the fact that um, the all actors that are performing, are actors of African descent, also bring multiple layers of, to read this piece um, when we're talking also about silencing, politics of silencing and speaking and listening. So uh, um, I thought that that could be um, really interesting to bring t- to put together. Mm.
0: One thing I was wondering when when um, narcissus looks at his own image and sees himself without knowing it. So he's we're seeing another actor, right? That's it's a, what what was behind that did, was that something you were imagining from the beginning or where did that idea come from?
1: Um I was imagining it from the beginning and I wanted very much. There appears. Um, Zer is actually a wonderful um, professional dancer. Uh, he was a ballet dancer and today does a modern dance. Um, and, and I wanted him to embody uh, the notion of beauty knowing also, um, describing his skin, his his lips, his hair, and contradicting exactly these uh, European notions of what beauty is. Um, I like this very much, this moment when Narcissus sees um, his love, his image, and then he starts describing this body that historically has been described as a body of ugliness, as a body of uh, barbarianness, of, of primitivism, of all the things, all the brutal things that we know, and he starts describing exactly one by one, one feature by one, how beauty it is. And I wanted to play exactly to restage these contradictions and maybe even to force the audience to have Different associations than usually have when seeing the images. Um, um, this is this is this, this was calculated when I worked. What was not very much calculated is that, you know, I did this work. This was a work that was commissioned to the Biennale of São Paulo, and I did another work, um, and I had this idea to do this one. Um, and uh, in the very last moment we knew that we had a very little money uh, ridiculous amount of money uh, not much more than two thousand euros so I knew that with this very small amount of money I could rent a studio that is extremely expensive in Berlin and shoot for one day and pay all the actors so what I did was exactly that I, I, I rented all the microphones I put together the minimal things and I worked with the actors and then we shot everything in one day um, because I wanted to make sure that I do the work um, and then we went to Sao Paulo and I edited and presented first in the form of a, of a, of a performance. Um, where I'm playing the Creole, the woman, the storyteller who is giving voice to this large screen projection.
0: You were doing that live. Exactly, and as a was.
1: performance. Um, and um, the, f- the, f- the film is silent, so I wanted really to work with this, um, with this tradition of telling a story where everything is very minimalist and you are focused on the storytelling, on the voice, on the narrative, uh, on the music, um, as a narrative, um, and, um, and this is how what we did. Uh, we, uh, I edited the film and we went to Sao Paulo and presented it um, and show it there for the very first time. Uh, after one day shooting, so...
0: (laughs) Was there also a two-channel version?
1: Exactly. Later then, I, I liked the project very much and I wanted to... not to have it only live, but I wanted to... I liked this idea of having a work installed where the audience can come and visit several times and come again and sit and listen attentively um, and visit. Uh, I find that very beautiful. I also like this idea of a work like this, such a piece to occupy the white cube, um, and also to bring all this discourse of decolonization into the white cube. That was very important, for instance, to do this in a space like the Biennale of Sao Paulo, where you interrupt spaces with um, new formats or new narratives that usually are not in those spaces. And so um, after the, the, uh, the premiere, then I, I adapted it into a two-channel installation that was first seen in Cape Town in South Africa. And it was very special that the work was seen first in Brazil and in South Africa, because both are countries that have a legacy, um, where the legacy of colonialism and apartheid are very present and are very active in and politically active and in memory. So it was very beautiful to show such a work in a space where people are politically so aware and so thirsty to to engage. And that was a blessing to do that. Um, Yeah.
0: Maybe we can take a few questions from the room. We have a microphone at the back. Can you please tell me what the significance is of the staircase?
1: I tell you with pleasure, you know. uh, I worked, my work is always very experimental, and I work a lot with improvisation, so um, before I put the money together to rent that studio for one day, I I designed, and I'm a terrible, I draw really terribly, but I designed a storyboard of the fixed images that we had to have to be able to tell the story of Narcissus and Echo. Um, and the, the 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 stairs were not there, but when we were at the studio, um, and I was searching for cables that we needed to put some light, I found in the back those stairs, <laughs> in the middle of the day, and um, and I was very happy about it because it's some a, a great um, symbol to the story that we are telling. So um, just to say that the work comes partly planned and partly it has to happen in the moment with the actors and and with the, with the place where you are. Um, sometimes I think that each story, the stories tell you how they want to be told. You can partly plan them, but the story wants to be told in a certain way. Um, it's like almost whispering, I want this format, this is how it has to come and the story let itself be told while you are doing it. And this was very much the process, even though I planned a lot, most of the work that I used in the final version was mostly from parts that we improvised. And um, and I find that very beautiful to work like that. There's a wonderful and a very dear friend, uh, Neo Muyanga, from South Africa, composer from South Africa who, d- who gave the music. Uh, I had previously the music uh, by um, Jay Arkins. I put a spell on you that was first recorded in 1955, and then later, ten years later, uh, in 1965, was recorded by Nina Simone. And uh, but we had serious problems to acquire the the rights. And um, and then my very dear friend Neil, I wrote him and said, "Look, this is a project. Do you think you have any work? This was like four weeks ago. Um, we didn't get the rights. It's impossible. I cannot pay because this is a very low budget uh, project. And he, he was such a love, and he, he, he sent this this um, this work, and we worked before this music, and we worked before together. Um, in Brazil, and we did in Brazil, we did um, a work on um, "Revolting Mass," "Revolting Mass," and the songs and the music of revolution, and music as narrative to to make political comments. And he kept saying all the time, oh, uh, "We always work with rehearsal. We always work with rehearsal." Work is rehearsal, that's when it becomes a good work. And that always was in my mind, and uh, the stairs came in this part of the rehearsal, uh, indeed.
0: More questions?
3: Um, uh, During the movie and uh, even before, uh, I have in mind uh, um, a link with uh, the Black uh, Orpheus, no, the Orfeo Negro, and uh, I think uh, both Narcissus and Echo and Orfeo are linked to the metamorphosis of Ovidius. So I, I'm not sure, but uh, I think so. No, and from the strategic point of view, the two points uh, is a question or a comment. What do you think about? Uh, Do you think that in the very idea of metamorphosis, of change, there is a kind of instrumental strategy of of practice for engaging political issues in the very idea of of metamorphosis? And uh, the second point is uh, actually a a congratulations because I'm sure that uh, uh, um, a stalling a little, like a beauty of war, no, the the Greek tradition and the Greek, the the the, the Western canon of Harold Bloom's uh, canon, no, the, this idea of uh, the canon of what is Europe and what is the genius of Europe and everything, and f- understanding that Narcissus not only is universal, but even more, it can be. We can think about uh, okay, what's it was uh, Latin or Greek, but before that it was Egyptian and before that it was African and, and so on, no, so. Just to open. Uh, um,
1: sorry, can you add the first question? I, I missed it. Yeah, the, 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 strategy of the, metamorphosis. the metamorphosis.
0: As a kind of metaphor for political change or political. I think
1: this is very much. Um, actually, I enjoy doing this project so much that I have decided to do a trilogy um, exactly to go th- to this transformation or to approach these different aspects that we are not really taking care of. I think Narcissus very much as this character that is very in love with himself. and who is very fascinated with himself when he, and constantly with the reproduction of itself. It's a very starting good starting point to deal with what postcolonialism is and this difficulty to see anything else and to acknowledge any other epistemology. I also find it very symbolic that Echo fell in love with Narcissus. This was very beautiful on the day uh, we had the premiere in Sao Paulo, it was a day that um, Trump was elected. (laughs) (laughs) And I heard, I was looking, I went back to the hotel and I was looking at the, uh, like everybody, I couldn't believe it. And I went to the hotel to watch the news and I heard in the news that 53% of the voters of Donald Trump were white women. And I thought, the echoes. And I realized how significant this work, this parable, is indeed that really brings all these different layers of gender and race together, how complex that all is so I thought it was a good uh, beginning um, to, s- to start reflecting um, in a critical way about what colonialism and how present and how our, 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 our over-present um, uh, colonialism still is and and um, But also with the questions like, the all I think all the analysis and all the reflection is part of um, metamorphosis. Um, the very final questions that we leave in a layer of multiple ignorances. It's not that we don't know, but that we don't have to know. Um, and that actually, what I'm saying, what we all know already, and to play with is what is knowledge and what do I acknowledge as knowledge and whose knowledge is this? To bring all these questions once you are looking at this piece is the beginning of this process of, of these metamorphosis for me, where um, also as it comes that not all of us have the privilege not to know. Um and how how long does it take that we start knowing and why you know all these questions that come are i think the starting of this metamorphoses absolutely
4: so <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, i I adore this work it's fantastic, and I wanted to connect with this question because i uh would like to maybe decolonize Narcissus in the sense that Narcissus, the story of Narcissus, is not necessarily a story of narcissism. This is something that happens in the white 19th century history with Freud, basically. So psychoanalysis has created this figure, negative figure, but the metamorphosis of Ovidio who wrote the ne- metamorphosis the story of Narcissus is a really important ch- story in Ovid's n- metamorphosis and it is possible that Narcissus, if we go back to the m- mythological story of it which is a Mediterranean story, which is a place of metamorphosis, it's a place of of course of as all history is very complex, but it's a Kind of a transitional border space, which had many transactions around the Mediterranean that have nothing to do with Northern European, Western canonical, white um, philosophical traditions of the of ra- rationality and so on. I mean, it is a a, a zone of métissage, and uh, this question that mythology has been whitened by psychoanalysis is another problem. So the story of Narcissus as a radical political figure uh, in Ovid could be a step to somehow blur this usage of a stereotypical view, you know, that, that one cannot become one with water that one cannot lose the boundaries of a self, you know, through a joyful encounter with the the shape of water for example just to go to his radical political thing of metamorphosis, given that Narcissus is a main character of Ovidio's metamorphosis Uh, I'm just saying this from situated knowledge, being someone who lives in Italy uh, it's very difficult to wear this cloak, you know, always of um a kind of uh, view which really comes from other parts originally, even I though don't, i don 't think Italy that is fascist, the point
1: i don't think that is really the point. I also think that having that knowledge that we all have uh, that is not sufficient to explain our reality. so um, we ha- I think we have to go far beyond that, and the place that I I chose in this piece to go, is that I, as a black woman, um, go to school and have to learn the Greek mythology. This is our reality. I don't know about Yoruba mythology, which is used in in the religions of my people and of my home. Those mythologies were forbidden they had to be hidden. The worships of our gods have to be hidden. But I know each Greek god. I had to write compositions about them. I know how they look like, I can imagine. I know who they were married with, who fell in love with it, with whom, all this individualization. So when I know these these, uh, mythological characters that have the history, that you're saying, and that we all know, and that is also mentioned. um, It's far beyond that. It's how these became a universal knowledge, and how these knowledge production is seen as neutral and as universal, that serves everybody. So, for me, what is very interesting is to go there to that point, for us as a generation of black women and black men and black people who go to school to the university every day and almost have no access to um, black authors, to black artists um, and to this narrative of of knowledge and to an epistemology that raises questions that are relevant for me that's what epistemology is Um, it's, it's about the themes, which questions can be asked. It is about the paradigms, How, do, from which perspective do I look at these questions? It's about the methodologies, how do I explain these? And when all these questions cannot be asked, then I find it very fascinating to start deconstructing what is that universal knowledge. And exactly this dynamic is part of this piece. What I know and what I was told as universal, but how do I, as a marginalized body, look at it and how do I tell my reality through that story that was told to me to be universal. And that, I find, is one of the most important processes of decolonization. Before Dawit and Eba were uh, ex, ex, uh, talking about uh, geographies of interests, con- of, of interest or some, this is- Convenience. Of convenience. Yeah, of convenience. we are. How do we look at things that are presented as universal, as neutral, as objective? And how do we deconstruct that? And how do we start narrating and creating new visualities that gives us new associations? That for me is important. I don't want to defend Narcissus. I'm not interested in defending Narcissus or Echo. I'm not here to defend nobody. I'm here to understand as an artist. I want to understand who I am. And I think, it's uh, I, I want to understand who I am and where am I at and why without having to defend anything or, um, or to protect any heritage. Uh, and that's part of the, the colonial work for me, in that sense.
0: We have time for one last question.
2: Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think your film is a really fantastic tool that can be used to educate and we'd love to have it in Bristol. We'd love to have you in Bristol. And I'm so glad that I know you as an artist now. Um, But I wanted to ask you in terms of being an artist now, uh, you identify as being a black woman, perhaps I'm guessing that like me, maybe dual heritage, but in terms of audience, who is most important to you right now? Is it people of audiences of African descent or is it audiences who occupy whiteness?
1: That's a very good question. <laughs> you know why it's a good question? Because that was a very important question for me in the past. Um, I think I've been working on this topic since 20 years at least. I, I've been lecturing at university as a guest professor since um, exactly 14 years. And I think at the beginning this question was very Prominent, very important for me. Um, until one day I, I encountered uh, the most beautiful lady, Marise Condé, and the wonderful writer from Martinique, friends with the wonderful Franz Fanon. And back then I was very young, and I wrote a book called Plantation Memories, and um, which is a compilation of episodes of everyday racism. And then I had the luck of releasing this book at the International Literature Festival in Berlin and opening the festival with this book on the same stage as Marie Condé and um, Nurdin Farah. So I was uh, surrounded by uh, idols on the same table and then exactly this question came. And Maris Condé was now in her eighties, I believe. Uh, this was like ten years or ten years ago or so. And she said uh, and she said, You don't do your work for nobody. You always do the work for yourself. And this image uh, this sentence uh, when she said that, um, really invaded my body from within. It was until today, there are people say certain things in a certain way that, that go with you for the rest of your life. And she said then, and she repeated, Grada, you do the work for you. You don't do the work for nobody else. And I was thinking about it a lot and I started realizing it's exactly what it is. Um, I think I do the work mostly and firstly to understand who I am. I think as a black woman, I have um, puzzle with a puzzle. I have a lot of pieces on the top of the table. Some are not turned, some are, some I know, most of them were hidden. Most of them were not named. Most of them were... Um, I'm trying to recover, and I'm trying now to turn them around and put these pieces together and understand the puzzle. I find a little bit that each artwork, each piece, it doesn't matter if it comes from publication to stage reading or video installation or film, tells one little part of one piece, of one story, where I try to understand what I understand. My story, and but my story is also a collective story that many people can identify with. But I think this vulnerability to work with this vulnerability allows a lot of people with different biographies to engage with the work, and to embark in the work and transform themselves into this in, and go into this metamorphoses. Um, I try to understand why I am, and I try to make sense of a history that was really, really erased from me, wrongly. That I didn't have access to most of the things that I would have liked to have. And I feel that artistic work is kind of recovering these parts of history that we don't know, or this knowledge that was taken away, or to construct it, or or to make a proper burial, which I think is also part of decolonizing knowledge, that you go, you make a proper burial to names and people that you should have known but you don't know, and you dedicate this work to that character Um, that that is not a ghost anymore. And we have these colonial ghosts because we have this history that was never properly buried uh, with dignity. And it's like naming things and putting things in their place. So um, mostly it comes from me to understand, knowing that and having the pleasure that I hope that a lot of people can engage with and can identify and feel empowered and can do their own works as well, because they also have stories to tell that I cannot tell and that I don't know how to tell. And that's, for me, very important.
0: Thank you, Grada. Obviously, we could speak for much longer, but uh, we we will take a 15-minute break and we come back for the panel on Decolonizing Knowledge. Thank you.